Hi guys, welcome to Grow and Learn. Today we're going to surprise you, maybe even shock you. Not gonna throw you under the bus, but uh, I'm bringing somebody who can tell good stories. We're going to have some fun and entertainment rather than business talks and talks about personal development, but I bet you're gonna grow more by listening to these stories and contemplating than by hearing what you're supposed to do. So I'm welcoming Vic Ferrari. Hi, Vic. The Vic Ferrari is a retired NYPD uh, detective. Hi, Vic. Hi, Let people you see your face. Hi. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me on your show. I appreciate it. Thanks for being a guest. So you're a retired NYPD officer, detective. Uh, how long have you been in the New York um, Police Department? So I was born and raised in New York City. Uh, I went into the police academy at 21 years old. I had a wonderful 20-year career with the New York City Police Department, and I worked at a lot of different specialized units. Out of my 20 years, 15 of which I was in plain clothes, uh, I was in an anti-crime unit, which we went after pickpockets, robberies in progress. We try to stop crimes before they happen. I worked in a DUI unit for a while, which I absolutely hated. I worked in the narcotics. What is that? What uh, is drunk that? driving. Uh-huh. Okay. There's, there's no winning dealing with drunks. They either want to fight. They either want to cry. They get sick. It's it, it, it's just babysitting for two and a half hours. Uh, I worked in narcotics for about a year and a half. I didn't like that either. My last 10 years, though, I was a detective in the NYPD's auto crime division. So anything with chop shops, stolen vehicles, exporting stolen vehicles out of the country, organized crime. So basically, we went after the head of the snake trying to take down these organized crime operations. Wow. And now you're an author of humorous books. Yes. That, after I that's retired. That's a turnaround. That's yeah, a turnaround. Well, <laughs> after I retired, I got into writing a series of books, um, four of which or a behind-the-scenes look at the New York City Police Department. Don't get me wrong, there's dark stories in there, but I, t I tend to focus on the humorous things that happen behind the scenes. Vic, what is the, uh, the story that you can think of where you thought, I'm going to shit my pants now? Oh, well, plenty of times. Um, people ask me, like, when you were a cop and when you were active, were you scared? And the answer is no, I, I, I wasn't, because... To be effective in that line of work, if you're afraid or nervous all the time, you just it's not going to work out well for you. You're going to think too much. You're going to hesitate and, and things can go sideways. Was I nervous or sometimes like you said, oh, shit, you know, when the shit hit the fan? Yeah, a couple of times. Um, one time my partner, I, it's the early 90s. It was a Saturday morning, probably about nine, 10 o'clock in the morning. We pull over this guy driving a Nissan Pathfinder for, I forget what it was, a taillight or some kind of traffic violation. I'm on the driver's side. As I'm talking to him, I realize he's been out the whole night. Like he's still in like clubbing out, a club outfit. He's got like this silk shirt. He smells like cologne. He's, he seems like he's all coked up from the night before. And he, his mind is racing 100 miles an hour. He's really nervous. I says, listen, I just pulled you over for a traffic violation. And I notice he keeps fiddling around with his waist. He had a trench coat above, uh, over his clothes. And I kept seeing him fiddle with his waist. I said, you know what? Why don't you step out of the car? I think it was a taillight. I said, let me show you your taillight and you can go on your way. And he said, all right. He gets out of the car. My partner's watching from the other side. And as he gets out of the car, I see him fiddling with his waist again. And it looks like he's got a gun in his waist. 
So I reach for where he's fiddling around and I clamp down on a handgun. And I said, oh shit, I got the gun in his waist. His hands clamped down on mine, right? So now we're wrestling for this gun and I'm screaming for my partner who's running around the other side of the car. I'm going, gun, gun, gun. And he goes, are you sure? I said, shoot him. He goes, are you sure? I go, yeah, shoot this son of a bitch. And luckily for, but I was so close to this guy wrestling with him because later on my partner explained, because I was afraid of blowing your brains out. So basically he turned around and just gave the guy a shot, knocked him knocked him silly and the guy's body went limp for a second when the guy relaxed i was able to pop the gun out of his waist and we arrested him but like you were asking me about you know did i shit my pants you know it's it, it's weird how when adrenaline kicks in and every your life flashes behind before your eyes it's it, you, your, your mind is a is a wonderful computer but when when something like that happens you're saying to yourself you're reviewing your options. But the one thing that stayed with me is I can't lose this fight. Like if I let go with this gun or this guy gets the upper hand, there's a reason we're wrestling for this gun. He's not saying take it. He right. wants it. And the reason he wants it is he's not going to run away. He's going to kill me. So any fears you have about getting hurt, a hernia, a heart attack, that goes out the window. That's secondary. Right now it's he and I, and I, I have to win this struggle. And thank God I was with my partner and, you know, we came out on top and he got out on bail. And uh, I think six months or a year later, we were almost going to trial over that gun arrest. He got arrested for a home invasion and they piggybacked our arrest with that arrest. And I think he got something like 15 years or something, a real dirtbag. Okay, but that didn't happen in the night when he was wearing the silk shirt. No, no. <laughs> he was the best oh. dressed. He was the best bad, best best dressed bad guy in Bronx Central booking that night. Uh huh. Okay. So you have a lot of stories to tell, I know, but I want to know out of this story that you told me now, were you trained in some way to? Um, not only in psychological tools, but to access kind of higher consciousness and um, extra source of energy or extra strength. Were you trained in such mind techniques? No, I mean, for me, I thought the police academy was a waste of time. Uh, it was six months of how not to get in trouble. Uh, our police academy, so we hire in bulk. New York City Police Department, any given time, is between 30,000 and 40,000 members. So a small police academy class of recruits or rookies is anywhere from 250 to 2,500. And the police academy, unfortunately, the people that were training us were 26, 27, 28 years old. They only had a couple of years in the street. You know, like how much could they really, yeah, they were book smart, but did they really have experience? No, they were hiding in there to study for the sergeant's exam, the lieutenant's exam. You really learned more when you hit the street and then you started buddying up with the veterans and it was like going to school like that, that then you started learning like we call it body uh what would you call it like people that have different ticks and tells where you can spot something a look when someone's trying to put you off when someone's trying to get you to chase your own tail uh then later on when i became a detective there were courses that you uh, could that's take. That's what I mean. Yeah. There were courses. But later different. on, yeah, it wasn't mm -hmm. initially, no. They just kind of gave us six months of bogus training and kind of dumped us out there in the street to learn on our own. Um, yeah. There was, 
but the, the problem with the NYPD is a lot of times these people that are training you, they're not seasoned veterans that did it. They're people that are hiding from working out in the street. And, you know, it's tough to respect someone that's never done something or put it to practicality telling you what to do. Mm-hmm. But sometimes courses were run by, you know, homicide detectives or people that were involved in hostage negotiations and that were involved in really heavy stuff. And that's when you're like, okay, I'm going to listen to this guy or this woman because they know what they're talking about. Were you ever um, participating in a hostage situation? And and did you ever participate in hostage negotiations? No, that wasn't my thing. I mean, I was a detective in organized crime. We have people that that's, I mean, that's not their specific role, but in the case that that comes up, they'll pull them from whatever they're doing that day. And the NYPD has so many people that they have more than, it's not like just like you see on television, like call the guy or call the girl, you know, and that person's at home and they come racing down. It, that happens sometimes, but for the most part, there's so many of these people that are trained in these things. But no, mm-hmm. I, I was never, thank God, I wasn't involved in a hostage or, or situation. So you wrote four books and they're humorous as far as I understood. And they're also not in chronological order. How did you write them? Did you write them during your tenure in the NYPD or did you write them afterwards? And can you tell us a story from one of these books? Sure. I got into writing basically because I was bored. So I had this wonderful 20-year career with the New York City Police Department. I'm going 100 miles an hour. And then I retired at 41 years old. I moved down to Florida, bored out of my mind. I become a police officer down in Florida. Didn't like that at all. Um, I went from being a detective in, in America's largest police department to a small town in Florida. They did things differently. They expected me to wrestle alligators. It's like, can't we just shoot these things? You know, instead they're giving us duct tape and telling you how to get behind the gator and duct tape its mouth. I'm like, I'm not doing this. I re-retired. And I was bored and friends and family said, you know, you've got all these stories. You've been involved in all this stuff. Why don't you just start writing some books about it? I said, yeah, all right. I, I, but the, I just, when I got into writing these books, I didn't want to get anybody divorced or fired. So what I do is I change the names, the dates, the locations. So I'm not pointing that much of a spotlight on somebody. <laughs> uh, I, I'm not disciplined enough to write in chronological order. So my books and all my books, you just pick up one of my books and you'll open it up. And there's a series of chapters and each chapter has several stories in it. So one of my books, there'll be a chapter called Crossing Over the Dark Side that deals with police corruption and cops that I knew that went bad and how the NYPD handles corruption and the process. Or you'll go to another one of my books. Um, there's a chapter in, one my, in uh, NYPD Law and Disorder called Sickness, Health and Fat Bastards. That's about overweight cops or police officers that tried getting out on tax-free disability and got caught. Uh-huh. Um, there's also so that eating donuts. What you see on uh, in the movies, eating donuts all day long. This is true about with cops, some cops. Well, you got to remember again with, with that many police officers in a priest uh, in, in the police department. Yeah, you're going to have overweight cops, and unfortunately, our department is so big, they're not going to give you a physical every year. They're not small police departments. Yeah, they'll make you run an obstacle 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 course, <laughs> or you know, send you for a complete physical. With that many members in the New York City Police Board, they're not going to do that. So 
basically some cops outgrow their uniforms in, in yeah. one of my in, in that chapter of the book my partner and i worked the 4 to 12 shift on the day shift there were two very overweight females that probably weighed about 250 pounds each okay in in new york city police department our, we don't take our cars home those cars run 24 mm-hmm. 7 so every night at three o'clock these two women would pull into the parking lot and hand us the keys to their police car and in the back seat, we would always find McDonald's bags, Dunkin' Donuts bags. It was wherever these two were grazing. And the vehicles we had back then didn't have bucket seats. They had the long bench seats. So what would happen is after we got a new police car, these two women's weight within th- two to three months would break the supports in the in the police car. So when you would step on the gas, you would rock back into the back seat because they broke the seat. So I had to go to a local dairy and get milk crates, plastic milk crates, and shove them in the back seat as supports so we wouldn't go flying into the back seat. So if we made an arrest, we had to take the milk crates out and put them in the trunk and then put the bad guy in the back seat. And their downfall was one afternoon I had a foot post and I was chasing a burglary suspect. And as I'm running down the street putting over this guy's description, I see the two female cops And they're out of their car and they're writing a car, a parking ticket. And I'm putting over the description and I'm like, I'm coming up on you right now. And I see them adjusting their radio because they hear me coming. They ignored me. They pretended they didn't see me as I ran past the two of them with the burglary suspect. And I cursed at them and kept running. Eventually, I caught him. I locked him up. I go into the station house. And now I'm mad. I'm mad I had to chase this guy. And I'm mad these two, I mean... Did I expect them to catch him? No. Did I, I think that maybe they'd get in his way or stick their foot out or throw a nightstick at him or something? <laughs> they didn't do anything. So when they came into the precinct to, for the end of their shift, I started yelling at them. And the sergeant came from behind the desk. He goes, what, what's wrong? And I explained to him what happened. He goes, oh, no, we can't do this. So what he did was he broke them up. He wouldn't let them work together. And he put them on foot and opposite ends in the precinct, hoping it would motivate them to lose weight. It didn't. But, you know, th- that's about the extent of how far they'll go to really get somebody in shape. Mm-hmm. OK. Wow. Interesting. Interesting. And then you moved to uh, detective work. What kind of uh, detective? Uh, what was the area of work? So I worked. So in New York City, you have different units. I worked in the auto crime division. The auto crime division is under organized crime. Um, Our unit was 120 detectives. And you got to remember, in New York City in the 90s, we were averaging over 150,000 stolen vehicles a year. Oh, So it was like shooting fish in a barrel. If you went out and you're driving around Mm -hmm. in a car and you had a computer, it was like playing the slots in a casino. If you ran enough plates, something was going to come back stolen. We would pick off the garden variety car thief that was just driving around, but our mission was to go after the professional car thieves, the junkyards, the body shops that were paying the thieves to steal cars, or the guys that were taking stolen cars, putting them in shipping containers and shipping them out of the country, which which, which was tremendous profit for these people. And if we were on a case and... We were on wiretaps and homicides and other things would come up and we would run with it. So sometimes we would start a case that was we thought was just simple stolen vehicles. 
And then you wind up solving a couple of homicides because guys are bragging about whacking this guy out. Or oh. once you take down the case, somebody knows they're going to jail for five or 10 years. And they don't want to do the time. And they go, oh, time out. I was with this guy when he killed two people. So then we would go, it would turn into a homicide investigation. Mm-hmm. Uh, to, to, to what degree do you think um, the NYPD is perpetrated or permeated with um, um, permeated with what is this called? It's not bribery. It is corruption. Corruption. Yes. Yeah. So, like I said earlier, you have thirty-five to forty thousand members, right? We hire in bulk, right? We hire between two hundred and twenty-five hundred. They do their best through psychologicals, background checks. I mean, when I got hired, I had to take written psychologicals. Then I had to sit down with a psychiatrist or a psychologist and go over my results. They went to my my neighborhood. They talked to my neighbors. They went to my jobs, pre, uh, prior employees, asking them questions. Was I a problem? Was you know Did I steal? Why wasn't I working there anymore? So they did their best. But it's not... It's not 100%. And sometimes you're going to get bad apples that come into the department. And and bad apples come in a variety of ways. Sometimes you have people that are sociopaths, and they're able to pass these exams. Oh, wow. And they, they appear just mm-hmm. fine. And they're mm-hmm. waiting for the right opportunity or a person just like them where they bump into each other and then boom, then you've got two of them. And then it's easier for them to pull off what they want and they want to pull off. From the day you get hired in the New York City Police Department, they tell you you're going to get fired if they catch you doing anything out of bounds. And in the police academy, we had guest speakers from ex-cops that were fired and had done jail time, explained to us what happens to you after you lose your job and go into jail. We had prosecutors that were tasked to root out police corruption come down and tell us about former cases and things they worked on. I mean, it was up front. I mean, they told us right up front there was no, well, I didn't know or I didn't know I could not do this. You knew the rules going in. Were there's a handful of people that were going to do it? Sure. Um, but I will say this. As soon as they caught wind that you would you were up to no good, even if they couldn't prove it, they would put you on what's called modifier, modified assignment where they take your gun and your badge. And they ship you off to like the NYPD's version of Siberia. Uh And (laughs) you'll sit there until they figure out what they're going to do with you. Like, was he involved in this? Wasn't he involved in this? And, you know, even sometimes what's worse is if they can't prove it, they will keep you there for the rest of your career. Like they can't, they don't have enough to fire you, but they will keep an eye on you and you're not going to have a gun or, or your, your ID card or your police shield. And they will keep you frozen for years. I mean, so, so they'll still can, pay you. So they'll still pay you for doing nothing. If they can't prove, well, no, you're working. I mean, you're just doing administrative work, punching mm-hmm. paperwork. Yeah. But that's if they can't prove it. You right. know what I mean? They don't have enough, you know, or and I've seen also like the precinct. One of the places I worked in was a really nice neighborhood. And what they would do is when they had somebody that they really didn't know what to do with them, they would put them there figuring there's nothing really going on here. There's not really much for them to get in and we can keep a better eye on them there. Mm-hmm. And how about the higher echelons? Do you have any information on that? 
<clears throat> was there corruption well, there? Well, there has been things. We, yeah, there. Are, I mean, in the last, um, God, five or ten years. I mean, since I've been retired, there has been some scandals where. So in, in New York City Police Department, it's civil service, meaning you have to take a test to go up in rank. So for a police officer to become a sergeant, for a sergeant to become a lieutenant, from a lieutenant to become a captain, you have to take a test. You have to you have to take a civil service test. Now everything above captain, deputy inspector, inspector, chief, one star chief, two star chief, those are political appointments. I so think. once you clear those hurdles, then it's who you know, or are you doing a good job? You know what I mean? You, you you're keeping the department in a good light. Some of these people, you know, there's nobody really watching them at that level. Right. That's because very now, interesting to know. That's very interesting to know that that uh, above a certain level, it's a, a political appointment. I didn't know. Oh that. Yeah. And what yeah. happens is sometimes these people, they're rubbing elbows with politicians mm -hmm. or powerful people that are promising them jobs once they retire. So for argument's sake, you're a precinct commander, you're a full bird inspector and you're working in, you know, a nice precinct in Manhattan where you have rich people. I mean, that's who lives there. Right. And you're going to these community meetings and stuff and, you know, people are coming up to you and, Oh, when are you thinking of retiring? Well, you know, I don't know, maybe in another couple of years, you know, I could use somebody like you to run security at my building or, you know, some corporation, you know, how would you like to be head of security at such and such? And there was a scandal um, after I retired about people above the rank of captain that were butting up with business leaders and taking get, going on private jets to conferences and th th things that, you know, they would go after us for getting a free cup of coffee. Like if you got caught getting a free cup of coffee or a discounted meal, they're going to take five vacation days from you. Right. Or God, no, or it's probably worse now. But he, here you got people above the rank of captain and they're, you know, going on private jets, going to things. That's not a conflict of interest. So, you know, but they don't get scrutinized as much as the rank and file members of the department. Let's have a glass of water together. Thank God for the muting button. <laughs> cool. So. Are there any jokes that you exchanged in? Um, so, so what do cops joke about? What do you do all day long if you're not like? Cops have, when, a, yeah. cops have a dark sense of humor. So, depends on where you work. Um, I, I, I notice the busier the precinct, like the worse the neighborhood, the better the cops were, and the funnier they, they were. Um, I worked in a couple of places. So, one place I worked in. We were always playing, and this is when I was in uniform, we were always playing practical jokes on each other. So one of the practical jokes I played on a couple of guys was we were going back and forth with things. And one day I heard them over the, it was a slow night. And I heard them over the radio that they were going to spend their hour, dinner hour in the precinct. So I waited till they took their radio car into the precinct parking lot. They went inside and uh, my partner and I broke into their police car. We took all the air vents off their air conditioner, the little vents. And we poured cornstarch down the holes. And then we put the AC vents back and put the AC up on high. So when they got into the police car and turned it on, poof, they looked like they worked at a bakery. So then they had to go and change their uniforms. Um, there was another guy. He was he he couldn't take a joke. Um, 
well, this kind of set him over the edge. And uh, he was bald. And uh, this is the early 90s when Rogaine, the drug that's supposed to grow hair, he left his locker open and somebody saw a bottle of Rogaine in his locker. So two guys that I work with took the Rogaine and they poured it in another container and then they filled the bottle up with wood stain oh. and they put it back. And then the guy starts applying wood stain to the top of his head and he's got a stained <laughs> head. He looked like a piece of wood. And he went batshit crazy and they had to kind of subdue him because he didn't take it very well. Um, a practical joke I played on a guy when you work in a detective squad, you've got 20 trained observers watching your every move. And it was getting close to my, my sign out time. And I had a date that night. So I changed my pants. So I'm walking around in a new pair of slacks. And uh, one of the guys noticed. And when I went up to get a cup of coffee, he took a glass of ice water and soaked my chair. I go back, I sit down. Now I've got a wet ass. And I'm like, oh, shit, everybody's <laughs> laughing. It's like, you got me. You got me. I go upstairs. I get changed. I come back downstairs. Across the street from our office was a pet store. So I went into the pet store and I bought 100 crickets. And the guy put them in a bag. And then I went into the parking lot with a Slim Jim. I broke into his personal vehicle. I cut the bag and they smell. And I dumped Already? all the crickets in the backseat of his car. I locked his door. I go back up into the office and he goes, hey, Vic, no hard feelings. I go, no, don't worry about it, right? So as we're signing out and everybody's leaving, he went out first and I grabbed him. I go, wait. So we went back to the window. We opened up the, we were like children looking out the window. He gets in his car. He comes pulling out of the parking lot. He slams on the brakes. He gets out and he's like, what the f You know, he's jumping around <laughs> and then he realizes he gives us the finger and he drives off. And then he wound up having to sell the car because he would bug bomb the car, like with those roach spray things, mm -hmm. but then they would keep breeding. So wow. he wound up having to sell the car as a result of me putting crickets in it. Oh, was that not the police car? It was his personal no, car. No, that was his personal car. Mm -hmm. Well, he soaked my personal pants. I, I, <laughs> I put crickets in his personal car. <laughs> That's funny. What are your books, uh, books called? <clears throat> Can you so, sell them? Yeah, sure. Yeah. So my latest book is NYPD Law and Disorder. That's about a lot of embarrassing moments that happened to me and, and people that I worked with. Uh, Grand Theft Auto, the NYPD's auto crime division. That's everything you want to know about the stolen car industry. A lot of stories about chop shops and, and stolen car rings. NYPD through the looking glass stories from inside America's largest police department. What That's, is this I'm, about? <clears throat> what kind of stories? Uh, behind the scene look into the New York City Police Department. So I'll tell you a quick story from that book. Uh, it was a guy we worked with. Well, in the NYPD, the quickest way to get into trouble is to lose your gun, your badge, or your ID card. If you lose any of those things, you're going to lose 30 vacation days, and they're going to put you on a year of disciplinary probation. So we worked with this guy. wasn't the brightest of people, and he lived in a bad neighborhood. And he was going out one night. He didn't want to take his gun. So he hid his gun in the one place he didn't think anyone would look, his stove. He goes out, has a couple of drinks, comes back four hours, nine beers later, and he's hungry. So he preheats his oven to 425, and he sits on the couch, and he's channel surfing. Well, inside his gun are bullets. Bullets yeah. are filled with gunpowder. Wow. So the gun starts firing the bullets start exploding in the stove. So he's sitting there. The first shot goes off. He goes, what What the hell was that? The second shot goes off. He's like, oh, shit. Now I know what's happening. He had to crawl out of his house on his hands and knees because his, his stove was shooting at him. 
He had to get on the phone, call 911. They had to send emergency <laughs> service to his house. He needed a new stove, a new gun, and he lost 30 vacation days and he got put on a year probation. Oh, poor guy. Yeah. <laughs> How many bullets are there in, in the type of guns that you had? That particular gun was an off-duty five-shot uh, Chief 38 caliber. That, that was the old days with the, with the smaller guns. Uh-huh. Oh, God. So basically if he would have had like, the Glock. If he would have had his Glock, which is an Austrian gun, if he would have had his Glock in there, which is 17, 16 or 17 shots, yeah, I mean, he'd probably still be outside. He'd probably still be going off. Wow. So that was a microwave oven, not a... No, it was a stove. Stove, uh-huh. I see. Okay. So And, and the guy was, uh, the, the gun was dead afterwards. It wasn't usable. Oh, blown or... to bits. Oh, really? Wow. Mm-hmm. Well, the bullets okay. are exploding in the chamber. So it's just, yeah. Wow. You know, it was a big molted mass. Wow. Crazy. Okay. So, so how did he feel about you afterwards? Did he know? Did he find out? I haven't talked to him in decades. Oh, I didn't God. mention his name. <laughs> I didn't mention where he worked. I'm sure if he were to pick up one of my books, I'm sure he would know it was him, but yeah. I didn't mention him by name or where he worked or where he lived or anything. Ah, uh, okay. <laughs> Hope he doesn't listen to this podcast then. <laughs> no idea what happened. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Vic. Thank you so much. Uh, I, I loved your stories. Where can people find your books? Sure. So if you go on Amazon, the book section, and just type in my name, Vic Ferrari, like the car, my yeah. Amazon book library will pop up. All my books are $10 paperback or $2.99 ebook download. And if you want to get a hold of me on social media, you can find me at VicFerrari50 on Twitter and Instagram. Is this your real name, by the way, Ferrari? No. <laughs> <laughs> I thought so. It's a, I thought it was a pseudonym. <laughs> Interesting. Okay. Cool. I want to make money. I don't necessarily want to be famous. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So is there any anything else you want to share with us? Anything that you feel like you need to or you were prepared to share, but you didn't get the chance? Uh, check out my latest book. I it's It's over my shoulder. I'm not going to go grab it, but it's called Confessions of a Catholic High School Graduate. It's about me growing up in the Bronx in New York City in the 70s and 80s me being a little son of a bitch getting into trouble all the time. And my parents sent me off to Catholic high school, which I didn't want to do when it was probably one of the best things to happen to me because I learned discipline and how to be a better person. And that helped me a lot to become a New York city police officer. Mm -hmm. what, what got you into police, uh, into this line of work? Why did you decide to become that? Oh, television, movies, um, on, te you know, in the seventies and eighties, it's not like we had cable. So, it was limited and all the TV uh, shows were about the New York city police department. Right. So I was fascinated with it. My mother used to take me to a movie theater that was around the corner from a police station. So on Saturdays, when she would take us to the movies, I would run up to the police cars and look inside and look at the equipment. I would talk to the policeman in front of the station house. Every little boy is fascinated with that gun. And I was like, I want one of those. And then later on, when I was about 10 years old, my friends and I used to sneak into the post office and steal FBI wanted posters off the wall. And we'd be going around the neighborhood with stolen wanted posters <laughs> and we'd be doing our little manhunts, you know, like, hey, that guy looks like that guy that's wanted for a bank robbery in Arizona. I knew what I wanted to do from the age of five. I wanted to become a police officer. And uh, I was I'm like that one percent that actually got to do what I wanted to do in life. And, and where are you heading next? What, what is your what are you what are your dreams now? 
the, this is I enjoy in the writing. I, I enjoy writing. I enjoy going on these podcasts. I think it's great that people like yourself afford me the opportunity to promote my books. Um, I don't know how many NYPD books I have left in me. I'm, I'm writing one right now. I don't have a title, but same thing. Funny stories from the police department. And, you know, eventually I'm going to start write, get, getting into writing different things. I've got some ideas. It's like anything else in life. It, I'm going to do it as long as it's fun. And I'm making money with it in that order. And when it's not, I'll do something else. Wonderful. Wishing you all the best. Wishing you tremendous sales. Guys, head to Amazon to look at the books of Vic Ferrari and enjoy and laugh. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you for listening to Grow and Learn. We hope that you found our podcast informative, engaging, and inspiring. Our mission is to help you keep growing and learning, and we hope that our conversations and insights have provided you with practical advice and useful perspectives. If you're looking for personalized support and guidance to help you achieve your personal or professional growth objectives, I offer a range of services to help. As a trusted management partner and mentor, I work with businesses in the process of transformation, looking for new streams of business, as well as M&A. With an extensive professional network of experts and mentors, I can bring on board the right person or team based on the specific needs of the company I'm working with. To learn more about the services I offer and how I can help you achieve your goals, visit my website at growandlearn.org. You can also reach out to me via email or social media. I'd love to hear from you. And if you enjoyed this episode of Grow and Learn, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Your feedback is important to us and it helps us to continue to create content that is relevant and valuable to our listeners. Thanks again for listening and we look forward to sharing more insights and perspectives with you in the future.